Welcome to the podcast from First Presbyterian Church, Arlington Heights. Our sermon series is called Parallax, where we're going to be looking at topics from the Bible from two different perspectives. I hope you enjoy. And now we will read the scripture from Genesis 1, 27 through 28. So God created humankind in his image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves upon the earth. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Our second scripture reading is also from Genesis. Simmer down. I know you're very excited about it. Genesis 2, those verses. <laughs> go ahead, go ahead, James. <laughs> 7 through 9 and 15. <laughs> then the Lord God formed man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living being. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east. And there he put the man whom he had formed. Out of the ground the Lord made to grow every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life also in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to till and keep it. The word of the Lord. So, if you've been here, you know that we are doing a sermon series called Parallax. It's not a sci-fi film, as you might think it might be. (laughs) Parallax is when two people are looking at the exact same thing, but they're seeing it in completely different ways. And so if we're using this graphic up here, the graphic has a tree with two suns on either side of it. And the idea being that you can be in a field watching the sun set, and if you're to the right of the tree, it looks as though the sun is setting to the left. And if you're on the left side of the field, it looks as though the sun is setting to the right. Exact same sunset, you're just seeing it from two completely different perspectives. And that's the goal of this series, is to talk about how this is true of the Bible. That two people can be reading the Bible, and you can interpret it in completely different ways. And so... Each week, we're going to have two preachers. I will always be up here, and you'll have TC and Judy switching off, much to Judy's relief. She's not up here this week uh, doing it again, but she did a good job last week. And so um, She's excited for next week. Yeah, I know. know. She's looking forward to next week, though. (laughs) (laughs) It's going to be a good time. So so this week, uh, TC and I, we're going to be talking about our topic. We're each going to be taking a side, and the topic we're discussing this week is Caring for the planet, and specifically we're going to be delving into what degree do we need to care for our earth versus using the earth's resources for our own well-being. And in the scripture that we read from uh, Genesis chapter 1, my favorite uh, book of the Bible is Genesis if you haven't been here before, the, uh, it's how God tells human beings that they are to fill the earth and subdue it. Now, that concept of filling the earth, we got that down, right? That's replicating the species. We know that. But subdue is a completely different thing. So the word subdue in Hebrew comes from the Hebrew word kauna, which literally means to be humbled or brought low. So when we're talking about humbling a human being, right, we're talking about taking somebody down a peg or two, right? 
They think that they're smart, they're athletic, they're agile, they're beautiful, kind of like this man right here. Stop it. <laughs> and then something happens, like you lose the argument in the sermon, and it makes you realize that you're not as great as you once thought you were. <laughs> so if that's what it means to humble a human being, what does it mean to humble the earth? What does it mean that we're trying to show the earth it's not as good as it once thought it was? Well, to understand why they use the word subdue in this particular instance, you have to understand how the ancients thought of the earth specifically. So you have to understand that we're going to go back in time. We're going to, we're going to do a little thought experiment. I want you to imagine that you're living a couple thousand years ago. Now, a couple thousand years ago, the way most of these people thought of the earth is that it was very chaotic and it was uncontrollable. Basically, there's a lot of stuff that was very unpredictable. Now, we go back a couple thousand years, and you're living in an agrarian society, meaning you're a farmer. And as a farmer, you're going to work very hard to till that field. I mean, you have to do it by hand. It's very, very challenging. You go out, you till your little plot of land, and then you plant seeds in it. But because they hadn't come up with technology to really make sure that water got to it, where are you going to get your water from? The sky. That's the only place you can get it is when it rains. So you got to hope that it's going to rain so that your crops can grow. For this little thought experiment, let's assume that it does grow. So it's growing, it's, it's doing well, and you're thinking, okay, this is good. My family, right, we're going to be able to eat as a result of this. But then all of a sudden, a storm comes along, and it begins to hail. And it hails, these big hail balls come down and just wreck all of your crops. Now all of a sudden, you're in a bad situation, right? Before you had food, you were looking forward to that, now you don't. So you gotta go to plan B. And in plan B, what you're gonna do is, you're gonna go out into the forest and you're gonna start scavenging. You're gonna look for roots and berries and mushrooms, anything that you can find out there that's gonna allow you to eat. And of course, from day to day, if you want to, you can try to hunt for an animal. But if you scavenge for those roots and berries, that gives you kind of a constant food supply. So you take your child, you go out into the forest, you're collecting all these things, and all of a sudden your child screams, yells out. And you run over and say, what's going on? And you see that there are two fang marks on their leg. And you can see that there's a little serpent kind of going off into the underbrush. Well, this is a really bad situation. You take your child, fling it over your, your, your shoulder, and you start running. You're several miles away from your village. You hope that you can get back there in time to get to the healer. But as you're going, you know that it's highly likely that you're not going to make it. And you get there, you lay your child down, and unfortunately, your child is unconscious and passes away. Now, during the funeral, this memorial service that you're going to have for your child, you start to feel sick yourself. You think maybe it's just the stress of having to deal with all this, but you have a fever. And what you didn't realize as you were running through the woods as fast as you could because of all the adrenaline that was going through you is that you ran across and got this gash on your arm when you hit a tree branch. And that gash is now infected. And you don't know whether or not your body's going to be able to fight off that infection or whether or not you're going to die. In the ancient world, life happened to you. And very often, what happened to you was out of your control. There was not a lot you could do to kind of deal with the environment. And so this commandment to subdue the earth, to humble it, is really a commandment for us to use our minds, to use our intellect, to be able to bring the earth under control, to get rid of that chaos 
which was their lives, and to try to make it so that you had some predictability in your life. And today, we have done that in amazing ways, have we not? Would you agree? I mean, today, let's take the example I just gave you. Today, we can grow crops anywhere because we know how to route water to it, and we can genetically modify seeds to grow under almost any condition. You get bit by a snake in America anyway, the likelihood of you dying is almost nil. We have anti-venom. As long as you can get to somebody in time, you're going to be good. And on top of all of that, if you get an infection, we have antibiotics that can help you get through most things. Now, of course, our antibiotics become a little less effective these days, but the fact is, is that we can treat most infections. And we've been able to do this and accomplish all of this because we have made use of the Earth's resources. We have taken those resources and used them to our end. In fact, today, what's amazing, if you're an average person living in America, which is pretty much all of us in this room, what's amazing is you enjoy a level of comfort that even the greatest kings of the earth from 100 years ago and before never experienced in their lifetimes. That's the level of comfort that you live right now, and that's because we have use the earth's resources, and we have been able to subdue the earth and actually follow God's commandments in that way. That was a terrible story you just told. <laughs> I, I didn't like imagining that one bit. Uh, my scripture is also from Genesis, uh, and it's the second... I know, it's, it's very exciting. <laughs> Please control yourself. Uh, it's the second telling of creation. Um, but the first one, God seems like this uh, very powerful, far beyond, vastly superior God who even a word throws galaxies into orbit and, and the earth is created and humanity comes about. Whereas in Genesis 2, God has a much more intimate role in the creation of the earth. God is walking on the earth, taking dust in God's hands, forming it into humanity, and breathing into its nostrils. I don't know if you've ever had anyone ever blow in your nostrils. It's, it's weird. It's very weird. <laughs> but God breathes life into this being and then places it in the garden and says to till and keep it. That's, that's a much different story than the, first sto than the Genesis 1. And what's always been interesting to me is that I always thought that these elaborated on one another. Like God was uh, up in wherever the galaxy and, and just making this stuff and then was like, all right, now it's time to get down there and form some stuff. But what, what it really is, is that these two stories were written in two very different times of Jewish history. You see, Genesis 1 was written by what scholars call the priestly writers, and Genesis 2 was written by what uh, scholars call the Yahwist writers. We know it's two different writers because of the way the Hebrew is formed and because of the names for God, from Elohim to El Shaddai to El, uh, as opposed to Yahweh, Y-H-W-H, -H, which is the holy name of God, which should never be spoken, and if we were Jewish, I would be in trouble. Uh, now, I know I'm throwing a lot at you, so we're, we're going to put some stuff up here on the screen for you so that you don't get lost and just stop listening to me, because that is a possibility. Let's start with the priestly writers. So the priestly writers were writing in the time of the exilic or the post-exilic era, which is around 
587 BCE to 538 <laughs> BCE. All right, I, I got it. I'm okay. I'm doing okay. <laughs> While the Yahwist writers were writing in the time of Solomon, which is right around 950 BCE. Now, a quick reminder that when we're talking about BC or BCE, it's like negative numbers. The bigger one is the further one away. So the Yahwist writer was writing first, and the priestly writer wrote second, which make, might make you go, well, why was the priestly writer's Genesis 1? Well, the priestly writers got to put together the, the Torah, so they were like, our story goes first. <laughs> So I tell you all of this not to show how great of a, a mind I have and how much I know about Genesis like some people might do. <laughs> so, no one here, obviously. But, <laughs> but because when we look at stories, I think it's important to know where they come from and where the writers were writing from and if that might have influenced the writings. And so let's start with the Yahwist writer, uh, who was writing in the time of Solomon, 950 BCE. At that time, Israel was its own nation. It had its own land. It had its own king. It had its own temple. It was feeling pretty good about itself. It was feeling pretty secure. And out of that place came a story where God is intimate. God is on the earth, breathing in nostrils, giving you commands. In juxtaposition to that, we have the priestly writers, or Genesis 1, writing in the exilic or the post-exilic era, which means that the Jews were, were in exile, or just coming back from exile. So what had happened is the Babylonians had come and conquered Israel. They tore down the temple. They killed their king. They took the majority of the Israelites to Babylon and kept them captive there. It is from this, story, this place that we get the story of a powerful God who, who is so powerful that an utterance from his mouth can create or destroy. You see, when you're powerless, when you're defenseless, when you're weak, that is when you need a God of hope and power. A God that is so strong that it gives you the courage to go towards that next hurdle. It emboldens you with power that you didn't know you had so that when you fall down or you get knocked on your butt, you get back up one more time because in your corner is a God who can seriously kick some butt. However, when you're comfortable, when you have basically everything you need and most of what you want. That is when you have an intimate God who's breathing into your nostrils, who's whispering into your ear, who's giving you tasks to till and to keep. A God who says, you have been blessed with so much. Make sure that it blesses others. You have been given this amazing gift. Make sure you take care of it so that others can enjoy it as well. And my question to you today, friends, is where do we find ourselves? Where do we find ourselves here in Arlington Heights? Where do we find ourselves here in the United States? Are we powerless or powerful? Are we comfortable 
or are we needy? And which side of God is speaking to us? So it sounds like, I want to make sure I understand what you're getting at here. Sure. So it sounds like what you're saying is, is that given these two different texts and when they were written and their context with each other, that ultimately because we live in America, in Arlington Heights, in a place where we're pretty well in control of our lives, yes? Mm -hmm. Yes, I would agree so far. Okay, that... I feel like you're setting me up, That essentially, yes. I am. Uh, <laughs> so that ultimately Genesis chapter 1 is not necessarily something where we have to subdue and control, that that's not really applicable to us in the context we're living in now in the same way that it was back then. Yes. Okay. And so therefore, essentially what it sounds like you're saying is that Genesis chapter 2, mm -hmm. where we're supposed to tend and till and do what Adam and Eve did in the Garden of Eden, that that's really more applicable to what we're dealing with right now. Yes. That's what you're saying. Yes. You all got that? <laughs> all right. All right. So here's the thing. So I focused on the subdue part mm -hmm. a little bit earlier with mine. I want to focus on the dominion part now for mine. So that word dominion, right, when we're talking about I'm not going to the Hebrew this time, but dominion, when you hear the word dominion, that has like a negative connotation for us, right, to dominate something. So I'll give you an example. So, so when we, let's talk about LeBron James, your favorite basketball player. Uh, uh, yeah, yeah. He's a basketball player. Uh, yeah. So let's say LeBron James is dominating the Detroit Pistons. Just let's pull an example out of the air. Why you gotta be? Like, kind of like right. that right there. Like that, yeah. Why you gotta be like this, man? <laughs> he who createth uh, the PowerPoint uh -huh. putteth in the pictures. <laughs> So let's just say that that was an example, just that mm -hmm, we pulled out of nowhere. Mm -hmm. So LeBron James, he's dominating. What do we mean by that? We mean that he's crushing the Detroit Pistons, right? He's really just putting them in their place. So when we're thinking of dominate, that's our point of view on it, right? But that's not what dominion means in Genesis chapter 1. That's not what it's talking about. Because for the ancient Hebrews, the idea of crushing, right, the birds of the air, the fish of the sea, everything that walks upon the earth. That doesn't make sense. For them, their dominion was their territory. It's where they lived. It's where they spent their time. And so because of that, it was important for them to actually be able to take care of all of that. So the idea was that if God has given you dominion over all of these things, that ultimately you need to care for all of that, right? Everything that's under your, under your care, everything is, is considered to be part of your dominion. So the idea is, is that you have to care for the birds of the air and the fish of the sea and everything that walks upon the earth. Now, why do you have to care for it? You got to care for it because you need it. You're relying on it. If you don't have those things, then the fact is you can't survive. So just imagine, let's go small for, for instance, right? So, you know, most of the people who, where did Jesus live? He, he lived next to the Sea of Galilee, right? The Lake of Galilee. If you overfish that lake, what happens? No more, no more fish. fish, you lose a major food supply, right? Right? So the same is true in our context with the oceans. You overfish the oceans, all of a sudden you've gotten rid of a major source of the world's food supply. And on top of that, when you get rid of all the fish, there's this, the ecosystem of the, of the ocean, right? Very finely balanced, you get rid of the fish, 
not only does it affect the ecosystem in the ocean, it's going to affect our ecosystem eventually. And so here's the thing. Yes, we are supposed to control the world. Yes, we are supposed to have dominion over it. But at the same time, we need those things. If we don't have those things and they're not there for us, then we're going to suffer. And so dominion really comes with a commandment of care and preservation to create an equilibrium, if you will. We want to thrive. That's the whole point of Genesis chapter 1. You thrive. You go out and use the world's resources. However, if we're going to thrive, we can't just eliminate everything on the earth. Would you agree with that? I mean, at the end of the day, we still need that stuff if we're going to make it. And so, to that end, I think that we still do need to control, and we need to continue to do that so that we can get rid of diseases, more diseases that are out there, so that we can make sure that everybody has enough food, so that we can make sure that everybody has the things that they need to survive in the best way possible to continue to improve our standard of living. But in that way, we also have to make sure that we're maintaining that equilibrium, because if we're going to be here, they have to be here. Uh, you're a monster, first of all. <laughs> For those of you who do not understand, the Detroit Pistons are my favorite basketball team because I'm originally from Metro Detroit area. Uh, he doesn't care about sports, <laughs> and so I can't get him back with anything like that. Monster. Um, so, really threw me off, bud. Uh, so, what's always interesting to me is, um, in Genesis 1, it used uses the word dominion. And whichever way you uh, define that word, it comes with power, power over the earth, power to create equilibrium, or power to drive animals to extinction. Whereas in Genesis 2, we're told that humankind was created and placed in the garden, and God said to till and keep it. Now, the garden is an allegory for the entire world, meaning that humanity is to till and keep the earth, thus making humanity a servant of the earth. Now, this is a small difference, but it's significant. Are we the leaders of the earth with power over it, or are we servants or stewards of the earth, trying to do what is best for the earth at all times? If we're leaders, if we have power, then we have choice. And when something happens, we have the choice to use that power for good or for ill, for selflessness or for selfishness. But if we're a servant, there is no choice. We are commanded to do what is best for the earth. We are commanded to mitigate the negative impacts on the earth. So when we hear about carbon pollution and garbage islands in the oceans, we don't have a choice whether or not to help. It is our responsibilities as servants of the earth. When we hear about ice caps melting and bees dying off, we don't say that it's fake news or that the studies are rigged. We do something because we are servants of the earth. And here's what I don't necessarily get about uh, the argument. Who benefits if we believe these studies? Who benefits if we try to clean up the earth? Who benefits if we find a more renewable way to live here on the planet? We all do, everyone. Not just us, but the generations to come. Being stewards of the earth benefits not only us and the earth, but everyone. 
So here's where I'm going to push back a little bit on you, which is to say that I think it's very easy to say that we should be good stewards of the planet. I don't know anybody who would disagree with that philosophy. Like, I, I, I think that most people would say, yeah, we should do it. I think it's much harder for us to do something meaningful about being a good steward of the planet. So let's take an example. One example might be public transportation, right? So if you go into the city every day, it's much better to take the train into the city. Why? Because the train can carry hundreds of people at a time into the city as opposed to you driving your car if it's just you or maximum five people usually in your car going into the city. It makes a big difference. Why does it make a big difference? Well, it's less fossil fuel. That means there's less carbon going into the atmosphere. And as we know, the more carbon's in the atmosphere, the more it traps heat on the earth, the less we have to deal with the effects of global warming. It's basic science, right? Everybody knows that. But just because you know it, doesn't mean that you're willing to do something meaningful about it. You're willing to change your behavior because particularly here in America, our lives have been built around convenience. Let me, let me give you an example. So if I can get to my job in 30 minutes by driving my car and it takes me an hour using public transportation and I can afford to drive my car, more than likely, I'm going to drive my car. Because what that means is, I get an hour back every single day. And that time is much more valuable to me than knowing that I'm going to do something good for the planet in the future. Because humans, the thing is, is that we're all about, what do I get now? Right? It's hard to think about what we're going to be doing in the future. Another example of this is what we eat. Right? So, you know, TC, you know that eating red meat is not good for the planet, right? Uh -huh. Uh -huh. So, why is red meat not good for the planet? Red meat's not good for the planet because it takes a lot of energy to produce red meat. So you have to give the cows a lot of feed, you have to give them tons of water, and they produce methane when they're just standing around, right? And methane is 30 times more heat trapping than carbon dioxide. So are you willing to change your lifestyle choices, the things that you like to eat, for the benefit of the planet? And I'm not just doing this to pick on you, <laughs> Aren't which you? I am. Aren't you? <laughs> But I'm posing this to everyone. Because here's the thing, this issue is even more compounded by the fact that our economy is driven by consumption. And so the less we consume, the worse it is for the overall economic growth of our country. So if you want to do something about that garbage island that you're talking about in the middle of the Pacific, if you want to do something that's actually going to help that, what that means is we have to buy less stuff. And the stuff we do buy has to be local, and reusable, which means it's going to be more expensive and less convenient. And of course, for people who live in America, when our lives have been built around convenience, that is a sacrifice. And so here's the question I would pose to you, the question that I think you really have to answer, because this is what it comes down to in my mind, which is that if we're going to do something about the environment to be good stewards of it, do something meaningful, how are you going to convince everyone that they need to buy less stuff and pay more for the things that they buy, while at the same time possibly destroying the very economic engine upon which they've come to rely for their livelihood. Anyways, if you can just answer that question for me, I'd really appreciate it. <laughs> Way to set me up for success. Wow, okay. Is it inconvenient? Absolutely it is. But do you know what else is inconvenient? Loving your neighbor. Forgiving those who hurt you. 
looking out for the poor and the marginalized. Pretty much everything God and Jesus tell us to do is inconvenient, and this is no different. We are called to look out for all of God's creation, and that includes the big one under our feet. And, and you're right, it is hard for us to see how we, who are so small on this planet, could affect such a big thing. It, it's, it's the same uh, mentality that flat earthers have. There's a group of people who believe that the earth is flat. Some of them might be in here. I'm not talking smack about you, but I'm kind of talking smack about you. <laughs> the reason they believe this is because of their own experience, their own personal experience. They stand on the earth and they look and they go, I know, it looked pretty flat to me. So they believe the earth is flat. But if they zoom out, like we need to zoom out, we can see where that mentality has gotten us. We do affect this earth. Imagine if 2.2 billion Christians, that is how many Christians are on this planet, took seriously God's command to be stewards of this earth. Imagine what we could do by all changing our lives a little bit, inconveniencing ourselves a bit. That's 30% of the human population on the planet. Rough math, it's not exactly 30%. Don't, look, don't fact check me. That's a huge impact. And for those of you who might say, you know, but it's not really us as individuals who are, are doing these things. It's these large corporations that we need to change. We have the power to change them. Corporations run on a thing called supply and demand, and if we demand a change, they'll change. Do you remember last year, two years ago, they all run together, when that video of the sea turtle came out that had a straw in its nose? <laughs> And, and it was this really hard video to watch of someone trying to pull out a straw from a sea turtle's nose. Do you remember the backlash from that? Everybody was like, we need to stop using plastic straws now. Even though plastic straws on the grand scheme of things wasn't a big contributor of, of pollution. It, was still, it, it still was one. Because of that, because of the backlash of that, companies started going to paper straws. McDonald's even talked about paper straws. I don't know if they've done it. I haven't gone to a McDonald's in years, but, well, except on retreats and with the kids. <laughs> but I have been to several restaurants that have paper straws now when they used to have plastic. We demanded a change, and they supplied it. That's how corporations work. So we need to do these inconvenient things, these small things in our lives. We need to use, reuse items. We need to stop using single plastic items, single-use plastic items in our lives. Change our light bulbs to LED. Use uh, fabric bags when you go to the store. And if you forget them because you're human and everyone does, especially my wife, then ask for... <laughs> And ask for paper. Even when they're in her car, she'll forget them. <laughs> it's adorable. <laughs> Use public transit. Carpool if you can't. All of these small inconveniences, when we add them up, when we demand change, create 
change in the world. We have been blessed with this beautiful earth. God has given us this gorgeous place where mountains scrape the sky, where rivers run clear like glass, where there are trees as big as a house. To not do all we can to take care of it is to ignore the magnificence of it. We are the stewards of this earth. Let us serve with respect and humility. We are the leaders of this earth. Let us lead with compassion. We are the tenants of this earth, God's chosen tenants. Let us leave it better than we found it. Amen. Amen. Thanks for listening. And if you want to learn more about First Presbyterian Church of Arlington Heights, please visit www.firstpresah.org for more information on service times, directions, and to learn more about the First Pres family of faith.